After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. It's Raghu, another edition of Mind Rolling. And uh, this is something that was put together that um, I think is a fantastic offering, if I do say so myself. A little bit of uh, subjective BS there, but uh, not really. Because uh, what we did was we pulled together some excerpts from podcasts that I've done with some just fabulous uh, teachers that uh, really uh, have extraordinary transmissions of particular practices. And uh, if we're talking about, like we're going into next year, 2020, and you all know what's going to be going on then, and we need some help, okay? And these people, they're giving us practical help. Um, okay, I'm going to list these people. I mean, they're just extraordinary. But before I do that, I just want to mention our wonderful partner, 1440.org, 1440 Multiversity. And they are having our best friend, Krishna Das, over for a weekend workshop in November, okay? That's a few weeks away, a couple of weeks. And uh, please go check it out on 1440.org. Fabulous place, as I've mentioned many times before. Uh, uh, but uh, those of you that love KD, go do this workshop with him. And um, also, by the way, because having satsang with Krishnas is a very special thing. I've been having satsang with him forever. And look at me. <laughs> but no, really, uh, satsang, which is the most important, uh, the most, these absolutes, I'll have to get rid of them somehow, uh, but it is extraordinarily important. The Buddha said, out of uh, uh, taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha, which is the best, he was asked, which out of the three? And he said, Sangha. So uh, I ain't the only one. Um, anyhow, yeah, so go have satsang with KD. But uh, I just want, I, I'm back from India. I've, I've mentioned it in the last couple of podcasts since I've been back it's like a few weeks or something. And, uh, you yeah, I'm just getting reintegrated with it. this thing over here is a little different than that thing over there, if you know what I mean. Just the daily uh, pulse and um, so I just got to say, I'm remembering this yatra that I did with Saraswati, following in Ramdas's footsteps through Devabhumi, the land of the gods in the Himalayas, and going from all the, to all the places that he and I and Krishnas and others, you know, uh, hung out with Maharaji back in the day. And... Um, I just was, because this satsang keeps coming up, this concept of satsang, it was so powerful to be there in that circumstance with uh, 30-odd people, uh, all of whom were just wide open. And, uh, you know, I may be a little bit curmudgeonly at times. I will go around with a big group of people, you know. But I loved it. <laughs> so uh, I'm just suggesting anybody out there who wants to do this incredible 
just fabulous uh, tour following in, in Ram Dass's footsteps that Saraswati does. Uh, there's another one coming up in the spring of next year in March. Go to nourishinglife.com slash yatra. Okay, check it out. Um, yeah, if I had a good time, then anyone out there can. I'm kidding. Um, okay, so uh, some of the, I mean, let's start with Joseph Goldstein, who did this whole thing around uh, aware and awake meditation. I mean, Joseph is just, uh, uh, by the way, I will say that uh, we had a, a retreat in Maui last December, and it was around generosity of the heart, and Joseph, in that retreat, gave one talk around what mindfulness is. If you listen to that, you can become enlightened right away, okay? And that's going to be available uh, soon. So Joseph is just the bomb. Um, I don't say any more about that. And then we had somebody you may not know named Tim Desmond, and Tim is, uh, has been a student of Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese Zen master who lives in, uh, well, he's in, uh, back at, in uh, Vietnam now, but he has what's called Plum Village, uh, his center in France. And uh, so Tim talks about what walking meditation is. It's another thing that I am so, uh, I so highly recommend for all of us, including myself, you can do it anywhere. Any, obviously, we're walking around. Well, we hopefully are walking around. Uh, all the time and not stuck in our in front of our screens but um so this is another wonderful practice and i'm really happy we got this into and this is the second uh, by the way the second podcast where we've gathered if this is the practices part two uh Tsultrum alioni lama she does this thing around what the dakini is in the dakini meditation which is around the goddess ever present with us uh, Gabor Mate does a whole thing around compassionate inquiry so that we can really sort of understand the agenda that we create for ourselves on a day-to-day -day basis, um, some of which may be a little unsavory uh, in terms of our desires and in terms of that which we don't want near us. So Gabor, who's a, an expert in uh, addiction, he did a whole thing in this podcast. If you can't listen to the whole podcast for that, because he did a whole thing with me, like um, a, a ther uh, he's a psych psychotherapist, so he did that. That was amazing. Um, but great, great passion, uh, uh, practice, compassionate uh, inquiry. And then uh, we have uh, David Nickturn, and David has this new book out there right now. You should check out. Um, I'm not going to try and remember the name, but we'll have that up in the show notes, okay? David's book. But he does a thing on Tonglen, another important practice. It's basically the sending and, and taking. So it's exchanging oneself for others. And he explains this. Like if, you, if you're going out for, if you're, no, you invite somebody over for pizza and you have a pizza there, he gets the big piece, okay? You get the little piece. Okay, that's exchanging oneself for others. It's another uh, compassion practice, um, which, boy, do we need that, right? Uh, and then last but not least at all, one of the great, great podcasts that I've ever done with anyone, and actually Krishnadas did it with me, uh, Mingjur Rinpoche. And he, uh, he talks about or he gives the practice of, in Tibetan, it's called gom, G-O-M, which is getting familiar with your own mind. Um, also, if you just had these practices, okay, you don't need anything else. I mean, except for allowing one's heart to open through all of whatever comes our way. That's a good prayer. So here you go. This is... Uh, some fabulous, fabulous excerpts of podcasts that I've done before with amazing teachers that gives us a, a leg up on getting a life in balance here on Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. You look at the show notes. We'll give you all of the links to the whole podcast, etc., etc. Okay. See you later. Ram Ram.
Well, it seems to me one one of the things as I uh, was reading through the book, you know, there's a lot of uh, very direct honesty from you about your own foibles, about what you've gone through, about what you still go through, and so on. And it you know, it reminded me a little bit of what attracted me in the, back in the day to Ramdas, who is also very very honest about his stuff, and it made it you know it made it easier for for those we you know we were real young back then. It made it easier to allow for our humanity to be present and not to run from it, not to judge it, and not to be afraid of it. And um, and I have to imagine that that's got to be an important ingredient in, uh, in in terms of the work that you have done with with addicts directly or with people who aren't drug addicts, as you put it, the the, the differential. So, yeah, what is your take? I mean, self honesty. Well, I think there has to be self-honesty, but it has to be a very compassionate self-honesty. In other words, self-honesty doesn't mean self-judgment. Mm. It actually, it actually means looking at the ego with compassion. Uh, instead of saying you're selfish and you're narcissistic and you're bad and you're grandiose and you're this and that and the other, what's really underneath that is fear. What's underneath that is isolation. What's underneath that is pain. That's what's driving this whole project. And so that, yes, it does take self-honesty. In other words, you have to look at in yourself what is working, what is not working. You know, when the 12 steps do their moral inventory about how we, our behavior has negatively impacted other people, that's not self-flagellation. That's really just, it's an inventory. An inventory is something objective. You just look at what is there, what is actually there, what is actually the case. But but that has to be uncompassionately, otherwise it becomes self-flagellation and self-judgment. So mm-hmm. I teach a, I teach a method called compassionate inquiry, hmm. which is, which is asking these questions of what's really going on. So I, I don't mind telling you that I've had all kinds of dysfunctional behaviors, um, including behaviors very often that I wish I could redo and, 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 and do differently. But, uh, like, like, again, as Eckhart Tolle says, the ego is not personal. So I'm not, I'm not being pejorative towards myself when I tell you that I've lied in my life, I've been dishonest, that I've been selfish. Um, I'm just saying this is the case. And then the inquiry is, well, what was driving me? What was going on? What, what, what hadn't I understood yet? What don't I still understand? What, what separation from reality am I still experiencing? So um, the inquiry has to be there, and it has to be a forthright one, but it has to be a compassionate one. Because there's another one of my teachers, H. Alma, Suhamad Ali says, only when compassion is present, Will people allow themselves to see the truth? So that if you engage in this inquiry with yourself, you have to be compassionate with yourself as well. And when, it, when it's compassion there, the truth doesn't hurt. Or if it hurts, it's the kind of, it's growing pains. It's it's not it's not meaningless suffering, but it's the pain of growing. And that, that compassion will allow for that and invite it. So. Yes, forthrightness and honesty and and compassion. Hmm. We just—I uh, was just actually in uh, in Maui with Ramdas and Krishnadas. We were doing a, a retreat there with Jack Cornfield as well uh, mm-hmm. and Trudy Goodman around trust in the heart, mm-hmm. and uh, and a lot of conversation came up around that uh, just that subject of being compassionate with oneself. Uh, to allow that kind of trust that we can have, you know, intuitive trust in the deepest part of who we really are. And yeah. that that was absolutely necessary before anybody could consider uh, any other kind of trust, any other kind of honest uh, relationship with with those around us and the world around us. So, um, yeah. Well, except that I would probably say it maybe a little bit differently. Uh you say that trust in ourselves. Well, actually, that's not quite how it begins because you see, we're, we're creatures of relationship. 
and we were hurt in relationship. And one of the first impacts of trauma is precisely that loss of trust in the self. Yeah. And on and, and a very practical level, because if I ask you this question, as I always do with my audiences, have you ever had a time when you had a strong gut feeling about something and you ignored it and you were sorry afterwards? What would you say? Yeah, everyone would say yes to that one. They all say yes, which means that at some point you actually lost trust in yourself. Right. And I'm not going to go into the reasons, but that loss of trust in the self was actually self-protective at a certain time. Because at a certain time, following your gut feelings, like your gut feelings as a two-year-old, the terror that you had would have been to run. But could you have run, escaped that situation as a two-year-old? No, of course not. All you could do to protect yourself is to actually disconnect from that gut feeling. So precisely so that you could be survive. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we lose the trust in ourselves because we didn't have the trust in our environment. If you had been able to go to your mother, if she had been able to receive you and hear you and hold you, and she would have validated your feelings, you wouldn't have had to get disconnected from yourself. So what I'm saying is that the loss of trust in ourselves begins with the loss of trust in our caregivers, which also means that when we work our way back towards ourselves, it usually also has to have some sense of safety with the people that we're working with. So that when you, uh, you know, I've not met Jack Cornfield personally, but I've talked to him by Skype once, and I've certainly seen many of his videos and read his books, and same with Ram Das, and you just feel that you're in the presence of people who you can trust. Yeah. And, and, and trust doesn't mean that they're going to rewrite about everything. Trust just means that their intentions are absolutely pure towards you. Yeah. And, and they won't be exploiting you. Well, then it's in that context, when you feel that safety, that's when you can regain your trust in yourself. Right. Safety. Safety, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, feeling safe. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, for everybody listening, and of course, uh, there are many people, and you know I've discussed this before, and we've discussed it when you came to Maui to teach at the retreat, about how can we get this related in a way that somebody who's not a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner necessarily can actually use the concept and the uh, practice in a way mm -hmm. that is, uh, because what you were talking about before, the fragmentation, the separation, the polarization that's going on now, mm -hmm. uh, the, the loss of respect for feminine principle uh, that's endemic, uh, obviously, with everything coming out, and that, at that uh, displacement, and the fact that the Dakini comes at that time. Can we, can we talk about it in a, in a practical term where people feel this kind of displacement mm -hmm. and how do they actually experience the energy of the Dakini and how can they use it to heal? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. The five families, which are what the five Dakinis are connected to, are something that anyone can relate to. So these are called the five Buddha families, and they're connected to obstructed emotional patterns, directions, colors, times of year, times of day, and so on. But the, the key piece of the five families is the transformation of the obstructed emotion <clears throat> into wisdom. And so, for example, let's say, uh, let's say your Padma family. Uh, Padma family is connected to desire, grasping, craving. Um, Padma people, for example, are not really are able to go deeply into relationship. They're very interested in seduction 
and the, the, the energy, the magnetism that it takes to seduce someone, but they don't, once you kind of get into the work of a relationship, they're not interested anymore. They like that superficial energy buzz that you get mm-hmm. through seduction. So, so let's say you're Padma and you have that, yeah, that's your, your issue, we could say. That very energy of Padma, that grasping, craving desire, has within it the potential of wisdom. When the grasping quality, the, the holding on to quality is released, that energy becomes wisdom of discernment or, or all discriminating wisdom. And so that wisdom can see relationship. It can see relationship of objects, for example, colors, so that Padma family is connected to the arts colors, shapes, and so on, and also can see relationships with people, but doesn't have that personal investment in it, can see with a discernment and work with relationship and work skillfully with people, but without that selfish, obstructed, encumbered pattern of the emotion before it becomes wisdom. So this one example of five families. And so there's one connected to anger and that becomes mirror-like wisdom. There's one connected to pride, which is also a feeling of not being good enough, not being enough in yourself. So you have to inflate yourself, pretend to be more. So that becomes wisdom of equanimity. And then there's one connected to jealousy or envy, which is also connected to speed and ambition. And that becomes all accomplishing wisdom. And then the central one at the base of them all is connected to what's traditionally called marika or ignorance, non-recognition. But that hooks into the emotions of depression, denial, procrastination, um, spaciness, and that spaciness becomes spaciousness at the mm-hmm. wisdom level, all accomplishing wisdom. So, your question was, okay, how how can some non-Buddhist normal 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 <laughs> are, are any of us normal? Um, how can how can somebody that doesn't um, relate to this or know this framework relate to this these ideas? So. The five Buddha families are very relatable. Once you hear them, you'll know which one you are. Maybe you're connected to a couple of them. Mm-hmm. And then the what I present in the book is how to work with certain sounds, which are called seed syllables, and light, color. So sounding a seed syllable and light to transform those emotions into the wisdom. That's the method. And then they're all connected to the mandala. And so you do this transformation through light and sound in in the structure, in the in that blueprint or template of the mandala. And so all of the obstructed patterns, at least while you're in the meditation, are transformed into the five wisdoms. Hmm. And it's well laid out in this book, uh, many, many different practices. Uh, actually, for each chapter on, on the family, the, the five different families, each chapter has practices. So uh, yeah. everyone who's listening out there, uh, it, it's fairly direct. I wouldn't say just simple. Um, uh, but even if you are not practicing Tibetan Buddhism, you could look at these things, especially around mandala, because... Uh, I think many people have an affinity once... Uh, I don't think there's anyone who doesn't see a mandala and sit for a moment with it. You can't just go, oh, that's nice, and move on. I mean, I think it would be very difficult to do that. So if you just take that initial uh, response to to the... Uh, first of all, grasping the concept of the mandala, 
and then sitting with it, I think you have a great beginning point in, in, in being able to follow some of the uh, practices in, in the book that you would um, feel comfortable with and that could really uh, to help, as, as uh, Lama is saying, transform negative emotions, mm-hmm. which we're all dealing with on a day-to-day basis. I think our listeners would really appreciate, because we're talking a lot about uh, going back to meditative practice. Mm-mm. And of course, your father was the most incredible meditation teachers, and he embodied this in such a great way. I only know this, by the way, through that fantastic book, uh, yeah, Blazing, Blazing Splendor. Splendor. Blazing Splendor, yeah. Oh, wonderful yes. book. Boy. Um, and so you talk about uh, gom meditation. Right. I think this is a very, very good thing for, for all of us to hear uh, as as a practice and understanding the idea of becoming familiar with, which I think is what gom means. Can you talk about yeah. that? Yeah. So in Tibetan term, what we call gom, gom for meditation. So... Tibetan term gom meaning meditation. So what is the meaning of gom is like getting familiar with. So getting familiar with your own mind, getting familiar with your self. So that's the meaning of gom. So how to get familiar with yourself? Through recognition, through awareness. So as I mentioned before, we all have this great awareness always there with us, present, 20, sometimes what I call 24-7, <laughs> 800, uh, 365 days of the year, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That oh. phrase, good? Yeah. Always there. But the problem is we are not recognized. And then we don't know how to connect with that. So how to connect with that awareness, that step-by-step practice? So first we can begin with the breath, you know, breathing meditation. Normally that's very famous meditation, sound meditation. Can you hear any sound now? Is there any sound? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, in, I'm in Kathmandu. Should have a lot of sound here. Yeah. <laughs> can you hear? Yeah, we can hear. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. That's the awareness. Just here. Once you recognize awareness, then you listen. What is awareness? Awareness meaning knowing. So knows what you are thinking, what you are feeling, what you are doing, what you are seeing. That's all. Very simple. That's the, the that's a cognition. And that awareness is like light. So when we look at the sky, you see the light in the sky, but in the empty sky, in the empty space, not easy to see light. If the light reflect on my face now, on this video, on the wall, on the tree, on the house, we can see light, easy to see. So therefore we have this light, awareness like light. But in order to connect with that, we need to use object first. So object can be breath, can be sound. <clears throat> so how to focus on the breath? Just knowing the breath. Okay, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. Just like that. And there's a lot of other thought comes, the millions of other thought, to-do list, you know, many people has, has a lot of lists. Can you hear the aeroplane sound? No, sound, sound? No, just a dog. Dog. <laughs> okay. So, when you be with the breath or with the sound, all these different thought comes. What we have to do is let them come, let them go. 
the main important thing is if we remember our breath, then it's okay. If we are not forget our breath, then there's a lot of other thought comes, like normal what I say, pizza. If you not forget your breath, still you remember your breath. If the pizza comes, let them come. Not only one pizza, two pizza, three pizza, four pizza, five pizza. Okay. Pizza around all over you. No problem <laughs> if you not forget your breath. Huh. But the, the most of the time, many people got misunderstand about misunderstanding about meditation is they thought, oh, no pizza. Uh-huh. Breath. Don't think anything else. Concentration. Uh-huh. But then you think about pizza more. So yeah. the real thing is just don't forget your breath. If you're not forgetting your breath, pizza can come and pizza can go. <laughs> so then slowly, slowly, then in the end, you can connect with awareness itself. In the end, no need support. You just let go of the support and just be with the present. Not get lost. The sense of present, sense of being. But there's no particular object. No even particular meditation also. Mm-hmm. So that's step-by-step practice. Mm. Wonderful. But one has to start with the concentration or the samatha. Yes, at the beginning. Dave, before we go, because we're getting to the end of the show, I I do would love you to share with us, uh, how about a Tonglin meditation would be uh, fabulous. Just a, a short thing, whatever. Uh, yeah. Please do share that with us, and also tell us what what uh, Tonglin meditation really is. Well, just a short uh, explanation, yeah. which is Tonglen means sending and taking. That's what the two words are in Tibetan. It's part of a a much larger topic called Lojong or mind training in a compassionate way, and the real theme is exchanging oneself for others. So to put it really simply, in terms that you just laid out, you give the bigger piece of pizza to the other person. <laughs> you, if there's rocks and sand on the piece that you take, that's okay, too. Um, so there's a sense of um, giving up that which we would hoard and giving that to the other. And there's also a sense of taking on kind of trouble and distress that the other person might be carrying and say, I'm willing to hold some of that uh, with you. So it's, it's a compassion practice, a deep, deep compassion practice. Um, there is a notion that it's, it can be misunderstood because you're not trying to toxify yourself by taking on other people's crap. It's not codependent. There's some understanding that all of it's sort of empty and impermanent in a way. And, and so you're not, you are not saying, give me that and I'll make myself sick with it. You're purifying it in a way and then redistributing it back out to space because you understand how to, how, to, how to not hold on to it, not cling to it. So that's important because otherwise you could make yourself sick doing something like this. So the, in the instruction, uh, it says ascending and taking should be alternated on the medium of the breath. So you link up the process of exchange with your own breath. The exhale is a really good opportunity to send out to somebody else. You know, you, you're sending out light, you're sending out joy, you're sending out a sense of balance and well-being, as you said. And on the in-breath, you're taking in any kind of dark, heavy, thick uh, energy that may be coming from the other person. So you're overcoming your own habit of hoarding your own goodies and, and trying to stay away from other people's problems. That's, that's really, it's really the practice is really for the person who's doing it. They say in a very advanced practice, you could actually be affecting the outcome. But really, at our level, what you're doing is you're working with your own habit. So that's the important point. And it starts with just, um, visualizing the kind of abstract quality of those energies. So you could actually breathe in some kind of soot or heaviness or thickness, breathe it in, delicious. And on the out breath, you let go of some kind of light, uh, joyful, sparkly kind of energy. 
And then you begin to synchronize that with your breathing. So on the in-breath, everybody, you could breathe in that dark, heavy, thick energy. And on the out-breath, light, clean, spacious. Breathe in, dark, heavy, out, light, spacious. And you get that rhythm going. And then in the formal practice, you can just bring to mind somebody you want to work with. Uh, it's often a good practice for somebody you know who's going through a hard time, like maybe they're ill or even dying. Um, and you think of that person and directed practice to them, uh, straight, straightforwardly to them. So let's say we're thinking of a friend who's having, you know, cancer or something like that. We're actually breathing in their stress, their anxiety, their pain, taking it into ourselves. And on the out-breath, we're sending them clear, light, loving, open-hearted acceptance. Continue that, that person in mind, alternating on the breath. You can continue like that for a while. And then, if you like, you can sort of uh, generalize and, and take the practice expanded to other people who are suffering in the same way. Maybe there's all the people. I have a dear friend who has cancer right now, so all the people who are suffering from that. And a lot of it is not knowing what's going on and a kind of anxiety about the future. So that all that psychological energy you can breathe in, and you have plenty of room for it. Breathe out a sense of relief, clarity, acceptance. Then there are other variations, but basically at the end, you return to the more abstract uh, version and then gradually dial that down and come back to kind of mindfulness of the breath, just letting go of the practice, letting go of the form of the practice, just being present. And really let it dissolve. In any form of formal practice, we should really allow it to arise from emptiness and allow it to dissolve at the end so we don't hold on to it. So it's a very condensed form of Tonglen. I think, you know, probably if you're going to do it, you should do it for 10 or 15 minutes. Mm. Wonderful, David. Thank you so much for that and share that with everybody, all of our listeners and uh, tuning into Mind Rolling and Be Here Now Network, and it's a fantastic antidote to our our day to day self interest, basically. Yeah, it, uh, it's it's just a, a wonderful thing and a wonderful meditation. Listen, if you could do one more little thing, Joseph, mm -hmm. I know it would be great to have just maybe a, a couple, a short few-minute uh, practice designed for basically... I'm, I'm, Everybody. I, yeah. Well, no, I was going to say, <laughs> I'm I'm giving you a specific thing that you can just turn out like a, mm -hmm. you know, like a computer. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but I'm thinking about all of us on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis and... Um, we may be going through something and uh, an untoward word from a co-worker, a call from a, 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 a wife or husband, a child, uh, annoying, whatever it may be that, that grabs our attention. Um, just a, a, a way to, in the moment, just sit in, in as quiet a place as you can get or, or just walk mm -hmm. somewhere where a little bit of a practice that we can engage back 
uh, behind the uh, movie of me, mm-hmm. as Christian Doss likes to call it. Uh, I like that, the movie of me. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, we'll just do a, a yeah. couple of minutes of, of a basic basic practice of being aware and awake. Uh, so uh, in whatever posture you may be in as you've been listening, um, can relax back into that posture, whether it's sitting or standing. You might let the eyes close gently, although it's also possible to sit with the eyes open. And just get a sense of the body in that posture. There's a phrase that I like to use which helps to ground this awareness. There is a body. There is a body and that becomes a framework for allowing whatever experience of the body there is to emerge. There is a body. Feel the sensations of the posture. You might feel the sensations of the body breathing. No expectations, no wanting. There is a body. In that awareness, there is a body. What is revealed? Different sensations, feeling of the breath. Within that framework, there is a body, you might hear sounds. Notice any quickly passing thoughts or images, seeing how they arise and pass. How empty they are of substance. There is a body. Being with whatever arises without wanting, without expectation. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Resting in the zero center of not wanting. And then pervading the space of open emptiness, the thoughts and feelings of loving kindness and compassion. May all beings live happily and at peace. Perhaps feeling the breath at the heart center. Radiating the wish. May all beings everywhere live happily and at peace.
when you feel ready, you can open your eyes and engage with that same quality of feeling with the world around you. Thank you, Joseph. You're very You're welcome. Beautiful. then again in terms of in practical terms and yeah. you spend a lot of time at plum village practicing yeah and meditation is certainly a, a central to that practice i would say yeah uh, by the way anybody who doesn't know about walking meditation somehow that image just came into my mind i thought yeah. of Thich Nhat Hanh, and then i thought i must have seen something recently of him doing walking meditation yeah uh, that's a great thing for people to do. Can yeah. you, you, you've done it, have you not? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Can you just describe yeah. just right here and now a little yeah. walking meditation? Yeah. If you're listening to this and you're walking or if you're listening to this and you're driving. So um, I want to, I want to give a little context. Um, when Thich Nhat Hanh first became a, a monk when he was 16 years old in Vietnam in the forties, um, he was given a little book of poems and he was asked to, his first training as a monastic was to memorize these poems. And there was a poem for everything that you might do throughout your day, a poem for walking, a poem for putting on your robes, a poem for eat, for, for serving your food and a different poem for eating and a different poem for having finished your food. Um, and the idea is that you were supposed to memorize these poems and recite them to bring your practice, to bring your intentionality into literally every moment of your life. And some of us um, wanna, some of us hear that and they're like, yes, every moment, that's what I'm going for. Yeah. And other people are like, can I start with one? It's like, <laughs> sure, start with one, yeah. with, with whatever you want. Mm. Um, but whether you're walking or whether you're driving right now, um, first, it's possible to walk in such a way that you're not trying to get anywhere. It's possible to walk in such a way that you have arrived exactly where you are in this moment. You're walking not to get to where you aren't, but you're walking in many ways to enjoy the experience of walking and walking to arrive here and now. And so with each step, there are different sort of phrases that we can match to our steps that work for different people. But um, sometimes with each step, we could say, um, with my left foot, I have arrived. And with my right foot, I am home. With my left foot in the here, and with my right foot in the now. And so with each step, I am here. I'm just where I am. And um, another way of, of uh, practicing walking meditation that Thich Nhat Hanh will sometimes describe is um, that each step you're kissing the earth with your feet. Mm. That it's this experience of like, here of, of relating to the earth in this loving way. And um, my experience of walking meditation is really breaking down the, the difference between practice and not practice, right? Um, I don't want my practice to be a thing that's separate from my life. Because for me, when my practice is separate from my life, there, it's really hard to bridge. It's like I can become this um, in the moments in my life when that's happened, how I describe myself as someone who's like really full of love and compassion so long as no one is interacting with me and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not doing anything. Yeah, right. And then as soon as I have to do something, I'm back to the neurotic, short-tempered, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And so... If so, 
And if that's what I want from my practice, great. But for me, that's not what I want. Yeah, so it's like, okay, when I'm walking, if, if when I'm walking, I'm not, oh yeah, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm trying to get there. Then that becomes like the metaphor for my whole life. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm, I'm trying to get there. And instead it's like, um, it's this practice of this is where I'm supposed to be. And then in the next step, and this is where I'm supposed to be. And everything that manifests in and around me is exactly how it's supposed to be. And I'm arriving in it. Um, and so that's, and so, and it's the same thing for when you're driving. It's this practice of I'm right here. I'm not trying to get to a different place. I am where I am. And I'll, and then when I, when I arrive, uh, you know, when I turn off the car, I'm there. And when I'm driving, I'm here. And it's this experience of like, yeah, it's my life isn't made up of not there yet. <laughs> yeah, or separation. Or separation, yeah. 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 Beautiful walking meditation, everybody, by the way. Absolutely take that. It's very effective, especially if you're one of those people who says, I can't meditate because I get yeah. too many thoughts. Yeah. Okay, get in that line, okay, yeah. about that. But it, if, if you can't, if, you know, the, the movement yeah. sometimes makes it uh, easier to get to that, at least that one-pointed state, just those kind of things, aside from being here now. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about be here now, ain't it, in the end? Yeah. 